Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would give us the ears to hear to what you, what you would have us to hear, and then you would give us the hearts to receive, and then do with it what you would have us to do. I pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Over the last three, four weeks, our lectionary has given us a, um, an excursion, a little bit of a, a trip through the climax, the pinnacle of the book to the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. So we've been looking at that for the last few weeks, and I think we have one more week before the lectionary takes us off to the pastoral epistles. But I think it's a good and healthy uh, journey through this, this climax of this what is really a beloved book, a truly beloved and a wonderful book of Scripture. In chapter 11, we saw, we, we found the concept of faith as a life that is lived with the conviction that fundamental reality and value are not found in what we can see and touch, not found in the created order. We may find it through the created order, as the created order points us to God, but fundamental reality and fundamental value and what we are to seek above all things is found in what we cannot see and touch. God Himself. He is truth, goodness, and beauty, and life, and being. And we receive those things from Him. The things that are created receive those things from Him. And we are not to find our meaning in things created but in our Creator. And that is the life of faith. Chapter 12 tells us quite up front that the life of faith is not easy. And Father Phil spoke last week about the need for endurance if we are going to live a life of faith. And it's not, endurance is not just for the super saint, the great spiritual athlete, but for all of us, all of us need to run with endurance. To aid us, we have the great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone before us and run their race and finished. And we have Jesus himself, who is the greatest example of endurance as he went to the cross. And his life that we have received is a source of endurance. And he himself waits for us at the end of our race, to receive us. Our Hebrews reading today continues this theme of enduring and looking beyond the things close at hand and living for the reality that very often seems far and distant from us. Only this time our reading comes with warnings. Like much of Hebrews to really understand what's happening in this passage, you have to be grounded, well-grounded in the Old Testament. That's true, of, that's true of all the New Testament, but especially the book of Hebrews. If you really don't have a good grasp of the Old Testament, you're not going to have a grasp of the book of Hebrews. So to really get at what we, the, the writer to the Hebrews is, is after here, we have to go back at least to the book of Exodus and see the great picture of salvation, the greatest picture of God's salvation in the Old Testament we find in the Exodus from Egypt. When God takes his called people out of Egypt, baptizes them into Moses, as Paul will say, 
through the Red Sea, takes them to the Mount Horeb, and from there eventually into the Promised Land. So when they leave Egypt, they go to what is called the Mountain of God, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And usually we think about their time there as the time in which God gives them the law. He brings them there to give them the law. And that's true. He does that. But that's not why He brings them to Horeb. That's, that happens there, but that's not what He's doing there. What God is doing at Mount Sinai in what seems to be about a year that they're there is He is making them His covenant people. He's entering into a covenant with this people and saying, I am your God, you are my people, and we are bound in a covenant together. Now, the giving of the law is part of that. It's part of what He's doing. But what He's doing is He's saying, you are my people, we are bound in a covenant together. And He goes through a ceremony of making them His people. He's entered into covenants with people before. They have been individuals and small groups, small families, but now this whole people He's taking. And to enact this awesome and terrifying covenant, He has an awesome and terrifying ceremony, which He comes down in fire and earthquakes and lightning, and they do not see Him, but they know He is there. And He enters in to this covenant, and he makes them, they become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's what he tells them. You're, you're, this is what's happening here. You're becoming a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in this covenant. And this covenant is to be a covenant of life, one that ties the people to the one who is life. God is life. And he's saying, I'm tying you to me. I'm bringing you into life. And the covenant would be life for them if they chose to live a life of faith. Now we use, often think of the life of faith as being a New Testament thing. It's not. It's not. When the New Testament talks about living life of faith, it points back to Old Testament people and says, this is, this is where we get this, Old Testament. And to live the life of the covenant that, that God enacts at at Mount Sinai, at Horeb, what he's asking them is you must live a life of faith. A life marked by the conviction that the God whose face they cannot see at Horeb, God specifically says, you cannot see me. The God whose face they cannot see was the God worth following, the God worth obeying, the God they were to worship. And that is how they were to live their life. Now, we may say it may not take a lot of... They, maybe they couldn't see his face, right? But how much faith does it take to follow a God when they see the fire, they feel the earthquakes, they, see the, they experience the darkness and the terror of what happens at, at Mount Sinai? And wouldn't you just... that take much faith to see that? The, the see effects of God? The truth of the matter, it, it seems that it does. Because they don't leave the mountain before they choose death before they choose to leave the covenant that they've made with God. Under the mountain itself, they decide to choose the comfortable, close-at-hand, tangible God, building a golden calf and giving in to the passions by worshiping it with sexual perversion. 
They can't yet give up what they know. They are addicted in some ways to the culture of Egypt. This is what they know. This is the culture they've experienced and they can't give it up even in the presence of the Almighty God. And they choose death. And they continue to choose death throughout the Old Testament. This is what we see in our Isaiah reading. When God's using specifically the covenant language. And he says, to you, my covenant people, you, my covenant people, you have made a covenant with death. You have made lies your refuge in the hope that when the overwhelming whip passes through, you will be spared. It will not work, God says. You have chosen the temporal, the close at hand, the comfortable. You have looked around at the cultures around you and said, I can understand that. I can see that. I choose that. And God says, choosing the temporal is choosing death because what is temporal, what is created, can never bring lasting help and salvation. You're entering into a covenant with death. You've rejected the covenant of life. The writer of the Hebrews emphasizes the same point. Now he's dealing with a new covenant. Christ has come. And we are going to celebrate this covenant in a few minutes. When Christ takes the disciples into the upper room and enacts this new covenant, establishes this new covenant, which he represents, which he he gives us in the Eucharist. And then he goes to Mount Calvary, right? The other, another mountain of God. And does the work necessary to bring this covenant into being in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the writer of the Hebrews insists this is a much better covenant. Not that the old one was bad. Father Bill talked about this last week. The old one was great. It was good. It was of God. But this is infinitely better through Christ. And it is a rich thing. But the writer is afraid that we, the readers, might miss the blessing of this greater covenant. And over and over and again throughout the book, he warns us, don't lose it. You, covenant people of God, don't reject it. Don't fall away. Don't go back to worshiping the temporal, giving in to the passions. Valuing the earthly kingdom over the heavenly. Be careful. And our passage today in chapter 12 contains the last such warning that the writer of the Hebrews gives us. And in it he gives us some of the things that lead us to reject this covenant. To walk away from this covenant. Let me read a portion of that again. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now how might we fail to obtain the grace of God? That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral 
or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up. There are two different ways we can see this command. Both, I think, are healthy and helpful and good ways to think of it. So we'll, we'll look at both of those briefly. Bitterness is one of the great destructive powers in the world. Bitterness is powerful. Bitterness grows slowly in us. And when it has matured, it so hardens us as to lead us to do things we would have never thought ourselves capable. It changes the way we think, the way we view the world, and it leads us to justify actions in ourselves that we would think of evil in other people. I can do this because what I've been through, what's happened to me, gives me the right to do this. We become addicted, addicted to bitterness. We can't let go of it. We can't let go of what's been done to me, of how I've been, you name it. And we are willing to endure pain ourselves to not let go of it. We are willing to hurt ourselves in an attempt to hurt other people, that person who's done that to me. And so we bring instructions on ourselves and the people around us. It often grows not just from perceived slights, but from real slights. Real things that have been done to us. Real mistreatment. Real disrespect that has been given to us. But that is no excuse for allowing bitterness to grow. There is no place in the Christian life for bitterness. We will all at some point, to varying degrees, be mistreated, be disrespected. Some much worse than others. But how we respond to that is very important. And the life of faith plays into that. There is a pass, path of focusing on the injury so that my life is now defined by that thing. And bitterness grows. The Bible encourages us not to go down that path but to live a life of faith which recognizes that what is of ultimate value and meaning, that what primarily identifies me is not what happens to me on earth, what happens to me here in the temporal, what a human being can do to me. We said last a couple weeks ago, Jesus gives those incredible commands. Don't be afraid of the person who can kill the body. Don't be afraid of what human beings can do to you. What happens to you here on earth? It may be awful and they may kill the body. What is more of importance 
What happens to your soul? What happens, what happens eternally? Focus on that. Don't get caught up in the disrespect shown for you by people. Don't seek to please man. Understand what your heavenly Father considers you to be. Remember you've been brought into a covenant with Him and He has put His identity on you and what He thinks of you and what He does is of ultimate importance. Now that's not easy. Talk about needing endurance. There are a few harder things that we'll have to do. There are a few harder things to do for many of us. For many of us, there are a few harder things to do than to get over what someone has done to us. But it is possible. It is absolutely possible. And Christ, once again, gives us the example of endurance. He who at the, at the cross said, forgive them, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing as they nailed him to a cross. And then for thousands of years, we have the examples of saints, people who have gone through unmentionable horrors, experienced it, and have gone through with grace, have not become hardened and bitter because they understand what Christ has done for them. And they understand who they are in Christ. It is possible. It is hard. It requires endurance, but it is possible. And this is the path that Scripture asks us to take. But the injunction here is not just for me to keep bitterness from growing in myself. That injunction is there. That's in that passage. But that's not the only thing that's being said here. This is the reference to a root of bitterness is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter number 29. Let me read you this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 29, Israel is in Moab and they're about to go into the promised land. And before they go into the promised land, God renews his covenant with them. They review and renew the covenant before they go in to the land. And this is what God says to them, beginning in verse uh, number 18. Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe his, whose heart is turned or turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of the nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who when he hears the words of this sworn covenant blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walked in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. The writer of the Hebrews is referencing this passage. And he's saying, be careful. I'm giving you a warning against the one who refuses to be under authority. The scoffer. The one who insists on having things his own way. The one who knows, knows that he is right. He is right. And insists that God and God's people let him live accordingly. And accommodate his views. What he knows to be right. 
the idolater. God puts this in this context, in the context of idolatry. The idolater is the one who lives his life for something other than God. And especially in the covenant people of God, it is the one who looks at this covenant that we are in with God and says, you know what? I can do it a different way. I know a better way. It's okay for me to be outside this, to do it my own way. It's okay for me to worship the things that culture will tell me to worship. To give myself for those things. God says, beware of that person. Don't let this person be among the covenant people of God. They will destroy. The writer of the Hebrews says, by this bitter root among you, the many become defiled. In Deuteronomy it says that this leads to the sweeping away of the moist and the dry alike. Those who are willing to follow God and those who are not are swept away. Be careful. Be careful of these attitudes. Be careful of idolatry. Idolatry is destructive and not just on a small scale. On a large scale. Be careful. The idea of idolatry being opposed to the life of faith continues in the next part of what he says. See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. A couple of Sundays ago, we talked about uh, the theological and I think the practical foundation for the biblical and Christian teaching of sex being exclusively between one man and one woman who are bound in the covenant of marriage. And anything outside of that is considered sexual immorality. Today I will simply add in this context a reminder that God always links sexual immorality and idolatry together. In the Old Testament especially, when he goes through and he's talking to his people, especially the idea of adultery, he says, he says to his people, you are going after other gods, you are an adulterous people. In both cases, it is taking what is exclusively owed to one with whom I am in a covenant bond and giving it to another. And God says, this puts you outside the covenant. We also have the example of Esau. Esau who was in line. Of course, God had told us. We knew that the blessing would go to Jacob. But he was the one in line. And he gave away his birthright. Birthright. What, What's, what does that include? That includes what God had promised Abraham. The covenant. It didn't matter to him. He gave it away for a meal. Now you say, well, he was starving. What, the earthly was still more important to him than the covenant promise that God had given. And he gave it away for a meal. Our appetites, the writer is saying, our appetites will draw us away from the covenant of God. Draw us away from worshiping God. Sexual appetites, 
the, the drive and desire for um, what we see, what we can touch, what we can have around us. Be careful. Those will, they're not bad. They're not bad things. Hebrews is not saying those are evil things. Be careful because they can draw you away from worshiping God. And having said that, the writer of the Hebrews gives us what I think is one of the one of the greatest passages of the Scripture, not just in Hebrews, but in, in the Bible. Um, and I'm going to just read this again. Um, it can hardly be improved by commenting on it. So listen to, listen to this passage again. But listen with in mind all that we've talked about of covenants between God and His people, of faith being a life lived in confidence of the fundamental reality, the unseen realities of God and of our place in them and the temptations we face to give up on them and to take the close at hand and the comfortable. Listen again. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Fellow believers, we are in a covenant with this God. And there is time to celebrate that, to rejoice with that. And we do. We have our feast days of the, the high days of Christmas and Easter that are joyous, wonderful times. But there is also time to remember what this means with reverence and awe and fear, remember that we are in 
covenant with a consuming fire. Do not choose the lesser earthly things. Do not give yourself to them. Do not cling to bitterness, your own rights, what is owed and what you're due here on earth. Let those things go. Do not cling, give in to your own passions and desires. Turn those towards God. Give them to Him. Use them in the ways He's asked, told you to use them. Be grateful, he says. In the midst of this awful, terrible remembrance, reminder, he says, be grateful. It's not him just putting his thumb on you. He's saying, I've given you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I know it feels like the things of earth are what you need to cling to because that will give you a foundation. It will not. Those things will be taken away. I'm giving you a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Be grateful for that. Embrace that. And worship God. Give Him the acceptable worship. Acceptable worship in reverence and awe. It is good to be reminded. It is good to be warned. It is not pleasant, but it is good. So I encourage you to hear today the word of the Lord as it has been given to us in the book of Hebrews. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.